If you'll open your Bibles to Colossians, we're going to continue the series that I started in 2020, and this is installment number four. Okay, uh, this is a long-term study through Colossians, as you've figured out by now. Last time we were together in Colossians was in March of last year, so here we go, seven, eight months later. Um, Colossians chapter 1, we'll be just looking at three verses this morning. This will probably be the smallest chunk that we'll look at at a time. Um, uh, so it's going to be verses 21 through 23. So as we face a new year together, Colonial, there are some things that, that I desire for us as a church body um, from a perspective of brothers and sisters and now from um, a perspective as one of your pastors. I want us to grow in our devotion to Jesus this year. Like if we can, if we can have goals, let's grow close to Jesus in our walk with him in the word. I want us to grow in our commitment um, to deepening Christ-centered community with one another. So not, not just me and Jesus, but um, me and Jesus and my brother or my sister. And I want us to grow in an awareness of people around us who need to be discipled. Um, and then and us take that initiative and, and say, hey, would you like to you know, get together and pray together? Or you want to do a Bible study, a book study? We can do anything you want. But uh, us take that ownership more and more and more. I want us to grow in our desire to see unreconciled people of all kinds meet our Lord, meet Jesus. And I want us to grow as a body, as Colonial Baptist Church, to be a people who are committed to displaying the glory and worth of our God in our lives. So this is a, this is a way that I'm, I'm committing to pray for us this year. Um, but I'm, I'm also committing to pray for us in another way. And that's more along the lines of things that I don't want for us. And I'm getting this, actually, this idea from Colossians earlier in the letter, um, in in Paul's prayer. I don't want us to be a people who grows complacent in doing good works. Because we've said a prayer at 4 or 40, and and now we're in, and, and now we can live however we want. Because we theologically accurately champion the phrase, we're saved by grace, not by works. I don't want us to slip into a view of God's commands as though they're extracurricular. They're really for for extra devoted Christians, like missionaries. I don't want us to grow complacent either about growing in our knowledge of God. Because we've already learned what we needed to know to, to come to faith in Christ. As though now we can devote our focus to um, other things that interest us. Golf, birding, cars. Our family, staying fit. As though knowing more and more about God is a good thing, but again, it's extracurricular. Neither do I want us to grow complacent about drawing our strength from God when we face life's hardships. As though, as being a Christian, we're just going to automatically go to God when we need help. Nor do I want us to grow complacent about giving joyful thanks to God for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. As though as Christians, we become automatically thankful people. So in Paul's words, I don't want us to be complacent about walking in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to him. So neither did Paul. And so he writes, and he comes to this section in his letter. 
He didn't want the Colossians to fall into a state of complacency or just cruising or being passive about their Christian walk so that they would become vulnerable to falling prey to some appealing but false teaching about the Christian life, about who Christ is and how they live it. In our study of Colossians so far, we've observed that Paul's strategy to help the Colossians stay pursuing Christ um, and not lose interest or, or be deceived was to lay out an incredibly compelling display of the sufficiency of Jesus. That's what we looked at last time, verses 15 through 20, the Christ hymn. Jesus is sufficient to be all that we need because he is the creator of everything. And he's the creator of the new creation, uh, the church. And if he creates it, he rules it, and he's in control. And he can be trusted. He's sufficient for everything we need. So we saw that last time we were together. If they would just believe that Jesus was all he claimed to be, surely they wouldn't be tempted to believe anything different. So he presents this beautiful display. Well, in our passage, Paul takes the incredible truth about who the beloved son is and the cosmic reconciliation that he's working about through his death. And he shows how that directly impacts the Colossian believers in the Lycus Valley in the time that they existed. But just as soon as he demonstrates that this cosmic event plugs into their little lives, he issues unapologetically and boldly a warning. He issues a sober warning that they must be alert and active in their faith if they intend to stand before the Lord holy and blameless and without reproach. So let me read our text for us this morning. It's just one sentence in the Greek. Um, the ESV preserves that same structure. It was one sentence over three verses. Let me read it for us. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the sentence has two main parts to it. Right? The first part I see is in verse 21 through 22, and then the second part is verse 23. And the way I summarize verse 21 and 22 the first point is, is this. We're, we're dealing with the personal implications of Christ's cosmic reconciliation. Okay, and that's from verses 15 through 20. That's, that's where we get to see what, what God is doing through Christ to reconcile all things to himself. And here in verses 21 through 22, we get to see those personal implications. And you, Colossians, are reconciled too. And then verse 23, I'd summarize like this. The necessary condition for personal participation in that reconciliation. The necessary condition for personal participation. And we'll get to that in verse 23. But let's look, how, look at verse 21, how this, how this begins. It starts with two little words. And you. The Apostle Paul takes Jesus' work of universe-wide reconciliation, which in one event both disarmed God's enemies and forgave sinners— and he applies it to this little church in Colossae. 
Something so big having such local effects is like a president of the United States uh, hosting an extravagant dinner party at his place on his own dime, in his own home, to celebrate the anniversary of the country. And then, and then inviting the whole nation, you're all invited, please, come. Huge scale, high honor, sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Then, weeks later, having forgotten the news, you walk out to the mailbox and you pull out this heavy weight envelope with your, your handwriting personally written on it. And either it's a really important personal invitation or it's a cable advertisement that has stooped shamelessly to deceit to get you to open their mail. I have got one of those. It was so frustrating. <laughs> I thought I got some real, real good news. I was invited, and it was a cable company. Wow, wow. So you open the envelope, and to your wonder, it's not an advertisement. It is actually a handwritten invitation for you to be able to come to this event by via personal vet, uh, personal jet, all expenses paid with a personal message. I would love for you and your family to be a part of this. Would you come? Signed, the president himself. Well, Paul transitions from this spectacular display of Christ as he, as he laid out in the hymn to the individual level particularity of the Colossians with those two words, and you. Paul explains then um, how these Colossians get to benefit from this. And he kind of does that in three pieces. So these are, these are my sub-points, if you will, for our, our, first, our first main point. First, he reminds them who they were before being reconciled, okay? And to, by extension, for all those who trust in Christ, who we are without it. So that's, that's my first sub-point, who we are without it. Secondly, he explains to them how it is that Christ reconciled them, okay? How we did it. And third, he's going to give the reason why Christ reconciled them and that's why he did it so who we are without it how he did it why he did it let's look at the first sub point here in verse 21 and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds the colossians were alienated from god have you ever felt alienated before um it took me several years in my life to uh allow the word alien to have the sense of foreigner. It was always little green men to me. And then I realized, oh, that's why little green men are called aliens, because that means they're foreigners. They're not from around here. Um, I don't believe in aliens. Please don't hear me saying that. <laughs> okay. All right. So have you ever felt alienated or on the outside or as a foreigner? Okay, maybe you have relationships like this um, at work or um, among your own friend circle. You feel kind of like an outsider or um, maybe even in your own family. It's not a fun feeling if you, are, you experience that. Well, apart from the Colossians, how the Colossians felt about it, they were, as mostly non-Jewish people, outsiders to what God had been doing in the world up to this point. Right? Listen to how Paul describes um, the, the state of non-Jewish people who weren't you know, the covenant people of God in his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, he says, Remember that at... That, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's some strong language. Do you understand that? That's the history of redemption. 
is that, God, that this world went from no hope without God to Abraham, glimmer of hope, to people, Hebrew people, to nation of Israel, to now in Jesus, anyone who will come. And that's, that's where we're living right here. Well, the Colossians weren't merely alienated from God. They were antagonistic toward him. The Colossians were hostile toward God in their minds. In their thinking, they were antagonistic toward a worldview where Yahweh, creator, through his beloved son, created everything, sustains everything, and rules everything. They rejected that explanation and hated God. They were enemies of God in their hearts. And you knew what was in their hearts and in their minds by the works that they did, the text says, by the the evil things that they would do. The Colossians' prior hostility was made evident by the evil works that they did. The things that they would participate in were obviously opposed to God and his beloved son, whether they were active idolatry, sexual immorality, hate, selfishness, it didn't matter. It was all behavior that rightly rightfully brought the condemnation and judgment of a holy God. However, that's not who the Colossians continued to be as we work to our second sub-point here. Something happened that changed everything for the Colossians. So how did he do it? How did Christ accomplish this reconciliation? Look at the first half of verse 22. We come into it. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This cosmic reconciliation includes you too. This one little line summarizes the entire good news of Jesus Christ. He's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The way God reconciled the Colossians and all who similarly express faith in Christ was by sending his son to take on a human physical body. He would live obediently to God as father without questioning the goodness of his commands or choosing to act on his own will in contrary to his father's. Jesus would show the world what God intended humanity to be, a race that knew and loved and obeyed and delighted in their maker, in its maker. But because of my great ancestor, Adam, and your great ancestor, Adam, his sinful choice, humanity has fallen to the point that we possess no effective way to heal the breach with our own resources. We wanted nothing of a good God to rule over us. Oh, that sounds oppressive. Rule over us. So alienated and hostile men nailed Jesus to a cross. The Lord of glory. But this greatest of evils was carried out according to God's meticulous good plan. In this way, Jesus offered his own sinless flesh, his sinless human body, as a substitutionary payment for the penalty of death that all of us have incurred on our own. Because we're a part of Adam's family. If you were born, you were born into Adam's family. And because of our own personal sins against our Creator. And this reconciliation would apply to all those who came to rely on the death and resurrection of Jesus as our death for sin and our resurrection into new life. So this is, this is how we did it. He reconciled the Colossians 
through his body by his death. But why did he do it? What is Christ's purpose for dying and mending a relationship that was previously characterized by alienation and hostility? My third sub-point, why did it? Look at the second half of verse 22. It was in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. <coughs> Jesus allowed sinful men to put him to death for this express purpose. Presenting, in this case, the Colossians to God, holy, set apart to God from sin for God's purposes, blameless, nothing that an accuser would accuse them of would stick and find them guilty. Above reproach, there would be no part of their lives that would bring God dishonor in Christ. Here's another way that Paul puts this. Look back in verse 12. If you look in chapter 1, verse 12. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The Father qualified, made you fit to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is why Jesus died on the cross, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So these are the personal implications, okay, now, of Jesus' cosmic reconciliation on the Colossians. Through their faith in Christ, they too were reconciled with God because of that event. However, lest the Colossians grow passive about their participation in that, in this reconciliation, or lest the Colossians begin to shift to believe something more or different or other than what they were taught about Christ, Paul gives them a sober and unapologetic warning that there is an ongoing, necessary condition to participating in this cosmic event. This brings us to our second main point, all right? The necessary condition for personal participation in Christ's cosmic reconciliation. I know that that is a mouthful. I'm so sorry. The necessary condition for personal participation in Christ's cosmic reconciliation. I can't even say it. There's one condition that Paul gives for those who want to be assured that they have truly, personally benefited from Christ's work and will go on benefiting from it. First, he states it positively. Then he states it negatively to further clarify what he's saying. All right, so look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, all right? So um, Paul boldly warns the Colossian believers. He says, and you too, you've been reconciled in order to be presented holy before God. If indeed you continue in the faith. He boldly warns the Colossian believers who, by the way, he has some level of confidence that they are walking faithfully with the Lord. Do you remember how the letter starts? He says, I, I, he's heard from Epaphras of their love for all the saints and their faith in Christ. And so Paul, with some confidence of their faithfulness, still issues this warning. If you continue in the faith. <clears throat> you see where I'm getting this idea of a condition, lest you be uneasy. If you look in the text, it says, if. There's this little two-letter word, if. I would ask you to pay attention now to what Paul doesn't say for just a moment. Okay, so you have been reconciled to be presented holy and blameless above reproach before God. If indeed, and he doesn't say, God completes the work that he's begun in you. 
Okay? He, he doesn't say, if indeed God who is faithful surely does it. He doesn't say, and you he's reconciled in order to be presented holy and blameless. If indeed God, who, out of whose hand no one can pluck you, keeps you. Or, and he doesn't say, if indeed God who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence with great joy, does so. Those truths, brothers and sisters, are beautiful and incredible truths that I'm prepared to die for. But they are not what Paul believes the Colossians needs to hear right now. Right? What, what, he, what, what they need to hear is that God commands them to live out in history their reconciliation through careful and active expressions of faith. God commands them to live out in history their current reconciliation in Christ through careful and active lives of faith in Christ. Now, I, I take faith, the faith here, to be referring to the content of the gospel, the, con- the good news, as in the truth that Christians believe. Specifically, that truth that one must rely on Jesus, his work, to be reconciled to God and, and to be enabled to live in obedience to God. So you must go on relying on Jesus, Paul says. You must continue in the faith if it's true that you are a participant in this grand reconciliation. Okay, so let's continue in the faith. Well, what should that look like? He gives a little more descriptions here. We should continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. The word stable has to do with the structure of a building. Okay, this is describing a structure that has a secure foundation. So it's not going to topple or fall over or collapse. The word steadfast refers to being firmly or solidly in place. All right, and it appears to be roughly synonymous. Stable, steadfast, not moving. So we must go on relying on Jesus. We must continue in the faith in such a way that we are relying completely on him. Putting all our weight in him. Putting all our trust in Jesus. Paul further clarifies what continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, looks like in the next line by saying it in a negative sense. Okay, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the gospel, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So here's how you, we, we as a church colonial, here's how Colossians, you don't continue in the faith. Here's how you don't do it. We allow our source of hope for maintaining a right relationship with God. We allow the source of hope for fighting our sin, for loving our neighbor, to shift to something other than Jesus Christ, to shift to something other than our union with Jesus Christ. That's our hope for being right with God, for being able to fight my sin. The good news of the gospel, what Christ has done and what he's doing in us. Here's how you don't continue in the faith. We allow our confidence to be able to stand with a clear conscience before God, to rest on our own works, our own record, or what we've done and what we will do. Or the relationships that we have. My parents were godly Christians. I've been in youth group all my life. Surely I'm going to continue. Or even more specific to the Colossians context, here's how you don't continue in the faith. You allow your confidence that God will assess you blameless on that day to rest on a 
modified, twisted version of the gospel that has added to it the traditions of men. To the Colossians, that would have been things like, you need to be careful what you eat. Eat certain things and not others. Or you need to be having certain spiritual experiences if you're really an authentic Christian. Or maybe you, you, need, to be, you need to be able to speak in the, the language of angels if you're, if you're going to really continue in the faith. You've got to be doing these things too. To put it another way, if you want to fail at continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, then take the gospel and relegate it to the past when you came to know Jesus and it got you into a relationship with Christ and leave it there. And then rely on something else to keep you going. That's one way you don't continue in the faith. Treat the gospel like it was your ticket in and leaving it at the door. Or you take the gospel, you set it here, okay? I need this. This is, this, is, this is my right relationship with God. And then you start adding other things to it in order to maintain that right relationship with God. Well, I, I mean, I should probably be doing uh, this too. I should probably be reading my Bible too. Um, and then, and then oh, I need to be maintaining my relationships with other people, going to church, whatever. And so now you've got your hope for making it. You're con continuing in the faith. Brothers and sisters, um, I, would, I would just encourage us this morning that expressing faith in Christ the moment we came to him is not merely the way into reconciliation with God. It is reconciled life. Let me just say that again. Expressing faith in Christ is not merely the way to be reconciled with God. It is the reconciled life with God. So, so then that, that all of a sudden takes expressing faith from the moment to like the daily need. I've got to be expressing faith in some manner. It's, it's, it, the way that I live has to be relying on Jesus at some core level that I need to think about. Choosing to stand solely in the hope that the gospel holds out. Okay, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Choosing to stand solely in the hope that the gospel holds out is not merely the way to enter into the new creation. It is new creature living. As new creatures, that's what we do. We maintain a stance in the, the hope of the gospel, the, the hope the gospel holds out. Okay, so before um, we wrap up our text and then we make some applications, um, Paul describes this gospel in which the Colossians are to to, to hold, to hold to, and to stand in three ways. First, he's, it's that gospel that you heard, as you see in, in verse 23. And it's that gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And it's that gospel of which I, Paul, became a minister. So these descriptions actually echo how he described the gospel earlier in the letter. If you remember um, in, in the first few verses, in verse 7, this is the gospel that, that the Colossians heard. It's the same one that they heard from Epaphras, the one that they learned from Epaphras. Okay, and it's the same gospel that's been preached throughout the known world, and that's bearing fruit among those churches. But to those two earlier descriptions of the gospel that he's echoing right now, he adds a third one, and that kind of transitions us into our next time together in two years. Um, and that is um, 
It's the gospel that the Lord Jesus appointed Paul to teach. And so he's going to then talk about his appointment to, to bring the Colossians mature in Christ. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll jump into that together lot, um, next time. Well, the Colossians are walking on the right path. That's what Paul seems to indicate. They're walking on the right path. But they need to use care to stay on it. It requires positive effort. There's really one main implication from, this, from these verses that I, that I see. Um, but there are several ways that we can apply it. So the, the, the main implication for us, like, um, because of what I've read, um, this, is, this is true. Like, this, is, this is what I'm taking away. As Christians, we've begun to participate already in Christ's cosmic reconciliation of all things. Okay, we've already begun to, to participate in what he's doing. And God is remaking us from the inside out. He's given us new life through spirit. Well, if it's true that we are participants in this, then we must demonstrate it by rejecting passive Christianity and in place embracing a faith that actively expresses itself. We must be actively pursuing our relationship with Christ. We can't afford to cruise. It's too dangerous. So I'd like to ask us some questions then um, that flow from the text this morning. What are you doing? This is a question for you to think to yourself. What are you doing? What am I doing to ensure that I continue in Christ? What am I doing to to ensure that that I'm going to continue in Christ and not shift from the hope of the gospel? Let me ask you, do you have friends that you know are willing to point out patterns in your life? Patterns of sin that, that aren't in step with the gospel. That if you proceed that way, it looks like you're shifting from the gospel. Do you have friends that are willing to do that? Some of us might be, might, might be longing for those friendships and yet growing frustrated that God hasn't provided the ones we think we need yet. If that's you, could I encourage you? You focus on being that friend to others. Would you do that for others in, in our body? Would you take the courage, the, 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 be brave and, and say, hey, I've I just I've been seeing some things lately. Um, maybe you can help me understand. It doesn't seem like it fits with what you say you believe. Well, do you have a plan for how you will stay actively engaged in your relationship with Christ? Do you have a plan for it? Or are you expecting that it will happen automatically? I find that in my lives, my life, I only have one life. When I, in my life, I'll go through phases when I am more or less intentional about pursuing Christ. Um, and when I am not purposeful and have a plan and have talked to people for, here's how I'm going to pursue Christ, it is not a good time. Um, and that is when Satan will, will tempt me to doubt and to be afraid and to be useless for God's kingdom. So I just encourage you, please have a plan and invite your church into it. What are we doing to ensure that our kids don't shift from the hope of the gospel? Do you push them to make godly friends? Are you helping them to develop habits that will help them continue in the faith for life? Habits like worshiping the Lord, spending time with his body, prioritizing time with believing friends, talking about their faith with their friends. 
perhaps, um, brothers and sisters, you might consider one really particular application. This is how I'd like to end this morning. Um, modify it, change it, twist it, do, do whatever you like. But here's an idea I have. Perhaps you might consider every Sunday, once a week, around a family meal, taking that personal grace commitment that we have as a church and just reading it for the family and asking the Lord to help us to strive to, to live this out. Would you, would you stand with me? And we're, we're going to read that together. We're going to read our personal grace commitment together um, as just a way that we can right now attempt to apply what we've heard. Lord, will you help us continue in the faith? So let's, let's recommit as a body. Um, I'm not asking us to do anything weird or different. This is just every time we have new members join, we like to say this. Um, but I, I say, why don't we make this a bigger part of our community as a body? This, this reminder of how we're committed to one another. So I'm going to lead us in reading. You should read along, right along with, the, with me, if you will. Um, let's start with, with the first slide there. Having been led by the grace of God through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit to repent of my sin and in faith turn to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and having given public testimony of this faith through baptism, I will endeavor through the power... I now joyfully and solemnly enter into this commitment with the members of Colonial Baptist Church. I will endeavor through the power of the Holy Spirit to support the articles of faith in the church constitution, to walk in love, to remember one another in prayer, to help one another in times of need, to exercise gentleness, fairness, and humility in my dealings with those in the church, to speak the truth in love, to be faithful in my responsibilities and commitments, and to honor my fellow members through both sexual purity and personal integrity while abstaining from things or practices which may bring harm to my faith or the faith of another. Let me pause this for a moment. Do you see how a commitment like this could help you continue in the faith? I hope you do. That's why we do it. Let's continue to read. I will endeavor to participate faithfully in times of worship, prayer, study, and fellowship with other believers to build up the church by using my spiritual gifts in ministry, to contribute cheerfully and regularly for the ministry and expenses of the church and the relief of the poor and the spread of the gospel to the world. I would just remind you, uh, brothers and sisters, that this um, is uh, something we strive for and that as we fail to to strive and as we fail to meet this, God gives grace and forgiveness and we show patience with one another. But we will strive for this.